Bibles tonight, and we'll pick up where we left off last week in Psalm 38. And uh, David is in pretty bad shape and pretty depressed about things. And as we read through this, we find out it's not just simply because things weren't going right or he got up on the wrong side of the bed or something like that. It's because God was dealing with him. You ever had God deal with you? Have God convict you? Have you ever felt the conviction of God through his word and by his spirit and you decided not to do anything with it, not to be obedient to it? Or maybe only be partially obedient because to obey partially is to actually be disobedient. Or maybe you just didn't want to do it when the Lord wanted you to do it. You wanted to do it your way and in your time. And man, things get rough when you do that. In fact, it's a promise. We like to claim promises from God. God has promised that if he loves you and you're his child, that he is going to, uh, to use the King James word, he's going to chastise you. That sounds worse than discipline. And it sounds worse than train, but those words are synonyms for chastisement. It's, all, it's not all negative, and from God's viewpoint, it's not negative at all. It's a correcting thing. It is something that teaches us a learning experience. It makes us wise, and uh, it also is something that uh, teaches us to be ready for other things that may come up and for temptations because when we're not right with God, when we're not obeying the Lord, then uh, we're, not, we're not in any shape to fight any battles spiritually. And, uh, well, we may fight them, but we don't win them, do we? And we're not in any shape to minister to anybody else. We're not really in any shape to worship the Lord. We find ourselves growing dull and dull of hearing, and we find ourselves kind of getting dead in, inside as we think about the Lord, bored and tired, resentful, frustrated. All of those kind of things come about as a result of uh, chastisement. And uh, if you will think about with me, and you might uh, look at Psalm 38, just the first four verses. And remember we talked about last week that God hates sin, but he loves his children. God hates sin, but he loves his children. And as a loving father, whenever you stray, whenever you start following the enemy, then uh, he is going to get involved. So think about this as we kind of review. God works actively to correct us and train us. In those first four verses, remember, it, it shows a God who is not passive and a God who's not just well, one of these days we're going to have to do something. This is a God who comes to action in our lives whenever we um, fail to follow him and whenever we fall into sin. And then uh, we talked about the fact that he uses some pretty severe military type terms, arrows, you know, those type of things that he is going to uh, hit the target every time because God works actively to correct us and then to train us. The Bible says, for example, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Word of God is, uh, uh, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. You know, we, we think some parts are profitable and some parts are not, but they're all profitable. And it, it is profitable to correct us and to teach us and to train us and, and to equip us for uh, righteousness sake that we might be complete in every good thing 
And so uh, one of those things confronts us when we're wrong and the other one shows us how to get right and then it shows us even after that how to stay right because you and I have a tendency to wonder and to stray from the Lord. And uh, I don't think that most of my Christian life I really thought about God going to war against my sin. He hates it more than I do. He hates it more than you do and he just doesn't sit back and say, well, whatever. Well, they'll figure it out. Well, it'll be okay. He goes to war because he loves you and he actually hates your sin. He wants to get rid of it. He wants to defeat it. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have victory. He wants you to have a rich, fulfilling relationship with him and not constantly be down in the dumps and under a burden and with his heavy hand upon you and suffering the consequences of uh, chastisement and we learned also that sin and we'll talk a little bit more about this tonight it affects every part of our life it's not we can't just compartmentalize it and keep it in one place it it spreads and it messes up other things when David talks about this it's messing with his mind it's messing messing with his emotions it's messing with his judgment and his decision making abilities and it's breaking down his health and so uh, we know that sin spreads and it corrupts and it cannot be managed it cannot be contained because it is a destroyer it even affects your worship and you can tell those times when you were right with God and the same song that bored you before, now all of a sudden it lights a fire within you. And the quiet time that you had that you just couldn't wait to get it over with, now all of a sudden you can't wait to get to it because you love the Lord and you love the things that He is teaching you. And you love the church. You love to fellowship with believers. You love to just be around God's children, your brothers and sisters, and you want to fellowship with them. But when you fall into sin, all of that kind of goes dead. All of that kind of, we lose our sensitivity to the Lord, to His Word, to His worship, to His praise. And uh, we're not uh, turned toward an obedient uh, uh, path but we are going our own way and we're trying so desperately to make it work and the more uh, it seems like that the Lord works to correct us the more we resist him until we finally get to the point of brokenness and the point of, su of submission to the Lord and we all hate that now we like the result of being broken and submitted to him but we hate the process of getting there we like to stand strong we like to do things our way and in our timing but tonight we're going to uh, notice some things that um, will help us and put a more of a positive spin on um, chastisement now, I remembered a quote from Golda Meir and uh, she said Back, uh, I think in the 60s, maybe the 70s, early 70s, long time ago, she said, you cannot negotiate peace with someone who has come to kill you. Now, so many people in this thing that's going on over there now, they just want a ceasefire. How do you just simply call a ceasefire and not respond after you've lost so many thousands of your citizens and you've had them murdered in so many horrific ways and then they're captured and uh, that type of thing. How do you do that? Because 
The people in Hamas want to kill not just some Jews, not just a few Jews, they want to kill all of them. And if you've heard the uh, chants of some of the protesters, even in our own country, on college campuses, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Okay? Now, if you were to take your Bible and look at a map of Israel that's maybe in the back of it, if Palestine takes things over from the river, the Jordan River, to the sea, the Mediterranean, okay, where is Israel going to be? And the answer is it won't be anywhere. They want it wiped out. They are denying Israel's right to exist. And there are so many people that you uh, think they don't know their history at all because they act like there was no thought about Israel or a Jewish homeland until the late 1940s. And then uh, the Jews came in there after the United Nations partitioned off part of that land and they just started, you know, pushing out Palestinians. Well, there actually were no Palestinians in ancient times, but there were Jews. And the Jews lived in that land. So this isn't a recent acquisition of that land. They've been there for 3,000 years. 3,000 years speaking the same language, the same race, and they have the same religion that they have had for 3,000 years. Now, you can't say that about anybody else. You can't say that about any other culture. And uh, everywhere you go in Israel, if you uh, turn a spade of dirt over, you're probably going to find some ancient artifact. It's amazing what all they find and what all has been preserved. And uh, so when people say that they, the Jews just came in and kicked out the Palestinians, well, that's actually not true. And so the Palestinians have a whole lot more hatred for the Jews than the Jews do for the Palestinians. And so to try to negotiate, they for year after year after year, war after war after war, rocket after rocket after rocket. And it's amazing that uh, from Gaza they can fire 10 or 50 or 100 rockets in Israel and all the world just goes ho-hum. Then Israel fires one back and they say Holocaust and genocide and all of those kind of things because they just can't win. And so they keep giving up land and they keep giving up strategic things and uh, uh, real estate in there. And uh, what are they doing? They're trying to negotiate with people who will not be satisfied until they are what? Dead. How do you negotiate with somebody who wants you and everyone like you dead and out of there? Okay. Now, there's a reason why I went into all of that. Because the Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief, any guess who that might be? Speaking of the devil. The thief comes only to what? Kill. He wants you dead. If he had the power, he would wipe us all out just like what they want to do in Palestine. He would take every Christian off of the face of the earth tonight if he were given that authority and that ability. Now, Jesus said he wants to. He wants to kill, and he wants to steal, and he wants to destroy. And he'll do whatever he can to trip us up, to cause us to ruin our testimony, to uh, have a lack of joy 
and to not have the fruit of the Spirit in our life, to not love God with all of our heart, and certainly not to love our neighbor as we love ourselves either. He wants us to be hypocritical. He wants us to be tripped up. He wants us to make a fool out of ourselves, and he wants us to be miserable in our Christian life. Now, if there's anything I get out of this psalm, it's that David was not enjoying the joy of the Lord, was he? And the reason is he talks about his sin and he talks about his foolishness. He had rebelled against God. Don't know what he did in this particular situation, but he was a sinner like all of us. And he also had done some dumb things. You know, sometimes we fall into sin, God starts dealing with it, and we're dumb enough to kind of keep on doing it. And the old... uh, saying is that uh, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same old thing expecting different results. That's probably what David does and the reason I know that is because that's what I tend to do. That's what you tend to do. That's what we do as God's people. We're sheep. Sheep are not very smart. They stink and they tend to stray and they're very vulnerable to their uh, predators out there. And so uh, taking that illustration from what Golda Meir says, you cannot negotiate with the demons of hell. You cannot negotiate with Satan. You cannot figure out a way to peacefully coexist. And in Israel, in that land, a lot of our presidents have wanted to have a two-state solution. Israel has their place and their right to exist, and the Palestinians have another place and their right to exist. Not really working all that well, is it? Well, it doesn't work in your life either. You cannot be divided. You are to love the Lord with your whole heart. You're not to have a part of it reserved for the enemy and a part of it reserved for your sin and a part of it that is reserved for the Lord. In fact, the Bible says in the book of James that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Can't think straight, can't walk straight. You can't get anything right. Everything kind of is messed up. And uh, that word double-minded is actually, the Greek word there means double-souled. Double-souled, S-O-U-L-D. And what that means is we kind of get into, I think I misspelled that, didn't I? But uh, we kind of get ourselves in a place to where we try to be partially for God and partially for us. And that doesn't work because the part of you that you reserve for yourself is controlled by the enemy and he doesn't want part of you, he wants all of you. And at the same time, the part that you reserve for the Lord, he doesn't want part of you, he wants all of you. We're to love the Lord and serve him with our whole heart and we're to seek him with everything that we've got. And so uh, we try to play this game and uh, we are just... In, in bad shape. And so we look with one eye to the world and we look with one eye to God and that's going to mess your vision up. That's going to give you one more bad headache if you try to do that. And uh, you're, you're going to be giving a bad testimony. In fact, your witness is kind of destroyed because people that watch you and you're in your home or in your neighborhood, or at work, or wherever, they don't really see you on fire for the Lord, sold out to the Lord. All they see is, well, you're just kind of like me, except you go to church. And where there's no difference that shows up and is distinct, there won't be any conviction. 
And so they go, well, that's probably good for you and good luck to you and hope it works out for you. But they don't really see any need for it in themselves. So the old hymn that says, while passing through this world of sin and others your life shall view, be uh, faithful and true without, within, and let others see Jesus in you. And that's what we are to do as ambassadors for Christ. We represent the king. And so David's not doing a very good job about, at, at that right now. In fact, you remember after his uh, mess up with Bathsheba, when he finally confessed his sin after he was confronted with Nathan, he goes through all of that about creating me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence, and all of that. At the very end of it, he says, and then sinners will be instructed in your way. In other words, it's when we get our lives right with God, then we have an impact on lost people. Then we have an impact on backslidden people. But when we're not right with God, we become the excuse that they use not to serve God, not to know God, not to follow God. And we don't ever want to become the excuse, or to put it in another way, we don't want to become the stumbling block. We don't ever want to do that. And so David, at this point, like us, he has fallen on some very, very hard times. He is absolutely miserable, and his life is not really counting for the glory of God. He's trying to make it work, but the thief is destroying his life, destroying his testimony, destroying his love for God. This is not the same guy that would watch sheep when he was a boy and sing songs to the Lord about the heavens, about the universe, about everything that is going on, even about the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Remember all of that, how beautiful that was? Nothing coming out of him like this right now. In fact, when you read this psalm, it's just pretty depressing, isn't it? This is a sad Psalm. This is a psalm of lament. And uh, that's what David is living. And God doesn't want his children to live like that. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus didn't leave it there. He said, I came that they may have life and actually have it abundantly. So the enemy has come to kill you. And God goes into action when we fall into sin because he loves us. And the devil wants to destroy us. So the devil's not your friend. And when the temptation comes, it says, oh, you'll feel better if you do this. You need a little relief. You need a change. You can't keep living all that religious way. You need a break from all of it. He's not doing that to help you. He's not doing that so that you can be therapeutic in your time away from the Lord. He's doing it that he might weaken you. He's doing this that he might destroy you. And he's doing it that he might kill you and destroy your witness before a lost and dying world. Now, Alexander McLaren, Scottish guy, says, this is a long-drawn wail, passionate at first, but gradually calming itself into submission and trust, though never passing from the minor key. This whole psalm, even after David calls upon the Lord and starts getting his thinking straight, it's still not quite the same. Now, it's not going to stay that way, 
But don't ever think that when you fall into sin and you're in sin for a lengthy period of time that you're just going to confess that sin and everything goes right back to where it was before. Remember, when you wander off into the wilderness, many times it's just as far back as it was into the wilderness. So the longer you wander, the, wander you, the longer you stray, the longer you keep uh, having your conscience seared, the longer you keep ignoring what the Word of God says and what the Spirit of God is drawing you, the further you go into it, the further you're going to have to come back to get out of it. Unless, of course, the Lord shows you a shortcut, and there are times when he does that. But it's never just an instantaneous, okay, everything's great now. You ever had a fight with somebody that you cared about? An argument maybe with your spouse? And you loved them, but you were embarrassed to be around them? And you were awkward around them? And you wondered, is this going to come up again? Are we going to get back into a fight again? Am I going to constantly be reminded of where I messed up and where I failed? And so you're kind of hesitant and tentative around them until you find out that they really have forgiven you and they really do love you and they really do receive you and then all of a sudden you can kiss and make up and it's not awkward anymore and uh, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. Well, in the same way, when we've been straying from the Lord and we're getting farther from Him and the consequences of sin and His chastisement are coming upon us, then those times, even when you do the First John 1-9 thing and you confess your sin and forsake it and you get right with God, it still takes a while before you really feel how much He loves you, before you really feel how much He has accepted you. Your mind is still telling you and the enemy is still whispering in your ear, how dare you go back to God now? How dare you try to pray to Him now? Oh, who do you think you are trying to worship God and be used by Him? You hypocrite, because He is, after all, the accuser of the brethren. But understand this, that's never the way your father feels because he's like the father who had the prodigal son and he's out there waiting and ready. And when he sees you, the book of James says, if you draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Just like that father, when he saw the son coming back, the father couldn't help it. He couldn't wait anymore. He ran and it was really shameful for a man of stature in that culture in those days to actually run and uh, hike up his robes and take off running. Just a shameful, disgraceful thing. But he didn't care. You know why? He loved his son. He wanted his son back. And when the son had his speech all prepared, Oh, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be one of your servants. The father didn't even listen to that. He said, Get a robe for him and get a ring for him and, and uh, get shoes for his feet because nobleman's son wore shoes in those days. Put a ring on his finger to identify him as my son and then let's go home and let's have one more big barbecue, right? Kill the fatted calf, and let's throw a party and invite all the neighbors. Why? The father was excited to have his son back. I wanted to ask you, have you ever really thought about your father, your heavenly father, being like that? Yes, he hates your sin, but he loves you every bit as much as he hates the sin. He goes into action so that he can get you out of sin and bring you back into the time of fellowship with him and the joy that you have in him and to rejoicing, right? 
And so that's the prodigal son. There's a picture of a father enthusiastic to receive his son back. Did you know your heavenly father is enthusiastically granting you forgiveness and mercy? He is joyful about welcoming you back whenever you've messed up, when you've blown it, and when you repent. He doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't hold you at arm's length. But like that father that Jesus told us about, he's ready to clean us up and get us dressed up and ready to go. And, and then let's celebrate because sin once again has been defeated. Now a lot of people don't think of God like that. They think about a God who's reluctant. They think about, about a God who says, well, I guess, and if you're going to claim promises, I guess I'm bound to do it, but I sure don't want to. That is not the way God is presented in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Your sins were paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins, and you are accepted in the Beloved, the Bible says, and that never changes. And so you have a God that just as eager as he was to save you because he did it according to the good pleasure of his will, that means he was excited about doing it. He was pleased to do it. And that's the way he treats us in all of this as well. We sin, we stray, we go further than we wanted to go, right? We stay longer than we intended to stay and it cost us more than we ever intended to pay. But when we turn to the Lord, he joyfully and enthusiastically receives us and forgives us. And we may be awkward for a while, but he's not. And we may still be, as McLaren said, in a minor key, even though we've confessed our sin, but we feel so guilt-ridden and we feel so sad about what we've done, and yet that's not the way the Father is. I want you to uh, think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 through 11. If you endure chastening, the discipline of God, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, without discipline, of which all have become partakers, well, then you're an illegitimate uh, and, uh, and you're not sons. In other words, you're a false convert, right? Furthermore, verse 9, we have had human fathers who corrected us. Can anybody say amen to that? Man, I can't. I thought my dad was going to kill me sometimes. And uh, we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he, God, for our prophet have you ever thought that some of you think that well God's just beating me up and punishing me he must really be enjoying this but I don't no the Bible says he does it for your prophet why that we may be partakers of his holiness now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present it's a good place for an amen right but painful nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, 
Are you paying attention to the Lord's discipline? Are you learning your lessons? To quote, was that uh, Ward Cleaver, Beaver Cleaver's dad? Have you learned your lesson? See, everything we do, God is teaching us. God is instructing us, and he's doing it out of love. He's doing it for our profit, and he's doing it to reclaim us. He's doing it because he's got a better way for us to live. And so we want to give glory to him, and we also want to have a credible witness before the world. And you can't do that when you are under the discipline of God. You've got to repent, and you've got to get that right. And uh, when you do, there's a lesson to be learned. But some of us, we uh, get right, we feel bad, we go through some hard times, we get right, and then we just forget about it. And God said, no, remember, think, this is training. This is something you're supposed to learn. You're not supposed to get called in from the game by the coach and have him bust a clipboard over your head and yell at you and set you on the bench for a while. And then when he puts you back out in the game, you do the same old thing you did before that got you in trouble. No, you got to learn. And so we don't think about what God is doing. We just think it's life. We just think it's uh, uh, luck or karma or anything like that. And it's not. For you as a child of God, this is God that is teaching you and training you. He says some things like this. In everything give thanks. For this is the, anybody remember? The will of God. You know, we're always looking around. What's the will of God? What's the will of God? I wish I knew the will of God. Well, that's the will of God. So, have you learned to be grateful? Are you practicing gratefulness? Are you saying thank you? Are you remembering just how good he has been to you? We do that with our little children. I mean, we even take little bitty Charlotte. And somebody gives her something. And what do her parents say? And Sammy and I try to, you know, back them up on the same thing. What do you say, Charlotte? Say, thank you. And she'll say, thank you. Does she mean it? I doubt she even understands it at this point. But you know why we're doing that and why they do it? Because it's good training. Right? You have to teach gratefulness don't you and you have to teach people to use manners and teach them to be polite well that's what God is doing with us we forget to say thank you I think about that story of the 10 lepers that uh, Jesus healed and only one came back to say thank you and Jesus said this is amazing we healed 10 one comes back and this guy's a foreigner he wasn't even a Jew I don't know why he was going to the temple, but maybe that's why he felt compelled not to go to the temple, but to come back to Jesus because he was not of their religion or their race, but he knew he had been healed, and Jesus commends him. Jesus loves thankfulness. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So maybe there are some things you go through, and the Lord, what he is doing is he is teaching you to be grateful. And finally you say, okay, I've got it, thank you. But then the next time he does something for you, you forget to say thanks. You forget to be grateful. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul added another word that really is tough to handle. Rejoice in the Lord, what? How, how good are you doing on that? Well, none of us do it perfectly. I know that. You know that. God knows that. The devil knows that. We don't. But are you doing it better? Are you doing it more? I didn't ask if you do it all the time just as you should. 
But don't you think after all this time that you've been saved, maybe you ought to be a little more thankful than you were five years ago, ten years ago for sure. You ought to be rejoicing in the Lord. Maybe if you haven't quite gotten the always yet, but your rejoice in the Lord sometimes is a little more consistent than it used to be because you're learning and because you're growing. And I would just say this, we have a problem because God teaches us something and we don't pay that much attention to it. You ever have your parents say, what did I tell you about that? Oh man, that's in cold chills up and down my spine, especially when I couldn't remember. Did you ever do that? What did I say about that young man? Oh, I hated that when that came up, that young man thing. And it was really bad when I looked at it. And I have no earthly idea. It must have been something. And you try to make up something and try to, you know, snow them or something. It doesn't work. And the same thing is true with our Heavenly Father. He's teaching us and He expects us to remember. And so He puts us through something again. And we go, why is this happening again? Probably because you didn't learn your lesson. Probably because you didn't give it proper thought. Probably because you didn't really care that much. All you did was want out of the situation. My brother used to say to my parents, Okay, can we quit talking and you just spank me and get this over with? Now how well do you think that works? Because that's not a repentant child. That's not a child who cares about what he does. That's just saying, do it and get it over with and I'll just you know, go on the way that I am. That's the way we act toward the Lord when we don't pay attention. And so we learn some things as we uh, look through this psalm. Look at verse 6. Okay, and we'll make this point. God chastises to bring healing. Have you ever thought about that? Here it is, you are sin sick, and God says, I am going to chastise you to bring you out of that so that you can actually have your soul healed. David said, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I don't like mourning. I've been to enough funerals. I don't like funerals. I've been to family members who have passed away. I don't like that. My cousin lost his wife just the other day, and uh, he is over in Arkansas, and this is just a real sad time for him. He's, he's not a real bundle of joy right now. He's not a lot of fun to hang around with right now. You know why? Because he is, and understandably so, and rightly so, he's in grief. He is mourning the loss of his wife. I think he's 55 or something like that. People that are in mourning are just not... A whole lot of fun to be around. They don't even like themselves. Life is miserable. This is David. I get the idea of the way he describes himself. Probably uh, people were kind of hanging, you know, in different places and staying away from him. And uh, they, 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 you know, it, you don't come up to somebody who's mourning and say, hey, I got a real funny joke. Let me, let me tell you. No, you don't do that. It's inappropriate. And that's kind of the way David is now. And I think it's hurting, hurting him all of this. I go mourning all the day. When I uh, think about that, I think about Psalm 34, verse 18. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, uh, that, that's a pretty good description for somebody who is in the midst of grieving, isn't it? Crushed in spirit. Right after the Murrah building bombing, one of my deacons at First Baptist Tuttle lost his wife. She worked in the Social Security Administration. She was probably, she probably saw McVeigh's truck pull up just before it went off from where she was located. And uh, Henry, boy, he was having a hard time. I remember I went to his house. I had been downtown that morning with my staff. We were at the mayor's prayer breakfast right downtown. We were down there praying about the time uh, Timothy McVeigh was pulling up to the Murrah building. And uh, the explosion probably happened while we were on our way back, so we weren't facing downtown. We didn't see the smoke, and we didn't hear anything. And... Uh, we got back to Tuttle and this uh, guy was supposed to be coming over to our house to work a little bit on some things. And uh, I saw him in the yard, so I went out and met him. And about that time, his wife pulled up and said, there's been an explosion downtown. Really? We hadn't heard anything. And uh, I remember going into my office and the secretaries there, they said, did you hear about what happened downtown? We all thought it was a courthouse. That was the initial report, the courthouse. Uh, had a bomb. And I, I don't know. I'm just pic picturing some person with a suitcase thing, you know, like on TV. And they set it down in a stairwell or something like that. I had no earthly idea. You remember those days? Sad. And then when we found out it was in the Murrah building. And then uh, the secretary starts going, oh no, that's where Olita works. That's where Shelly Turner works. We had four people from our little town that were killed and buried from all of that. And uh, our church hosted three of those funerals. I preached two of them. And uh, dignitaries from Washington and all those kind of people coming in to pay tribute, which I think was a, was a good thing. But I knew there was something I had to do. And that was I had to get in my car. I had to go down to Sarah Road. I had to turned and I had to go to uh, Henry Biddy's house. And when I got there, I rang the doorbell and he said, come in. And I walked in and I said, Henry, I'm so sorry. And he had a big screen TV and those weren't common back then. And there, the helicopter had zoomed in on the Murrah building. Half of it's gone. Smoke and rubble and everything everywhere. And I remember him saying, preach, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And that was a hard thing. Well, Henry, cheer up. Why don't you? Uh, let, me, let me tell you something funny. A funny thing happened this morning. While we were praying, a guy was pulling up in a rider truck with fertilizer. To, you, know, you, you, you don't do that kind of stuff, do you? That next Sunday morning, I think that happened on a Wednesday. And the next Sunday morning... Here comes Henry, coming to Sunday school, coming to teach his class. He taught in the youth department. Henry, what are you doing here? And he said, Brother Greg, if it were up to Henry, Henry would be at home with the curtains drawn, closed, 
pulling the sheets and the covers up over my head and I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't want to see anybody. I wouldn't want to do anything. He said, I'm here because Jesus told me to come and I've got something to say and I've got a great God to worship. Man, can you imagine? David wasn't like that. David wasn't like Henry at this point. David was a mess, an absolute mess. And you would not want to be around David. You never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in. And you know, when you have a king that has absolute power, it kind of matters what mood the king is in, doesn't it? I mean, he could just say, uh, as soon as say, hey, how y'all doing? Or off with their heads or throw them in prison or whatever. Uh, this is the way David is. Very emotionally unstable, crushed in his spirit. But the good news is, that's the kind of person the Lord looks after. The Bible says in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The word despise means you won't ignore, you won't overlook it. So I want to tell you something. If you've got a broken heart tonight, if you're crushed in spirit, if you're discouraged Confess your sin if there's sin that's causing that. Get right with God and worship Him and, and take you know, your eyes and put them upon Jesus. But know this, your broken, discouraged heart has the attention of God because He doesn't despise that. And we spend all of our lives trying to avoid ever being broken, ever being hurt, and yet that's where we generally meet with God according to the scripture that's where he really really works so number two another thing to think about God chastens to stop to halt the corrupting corrosive power of sin when we lived in Germany it was kind of funny because uh, they had just come out with a lot of the signs now are international signs that we have all around us but they weren't quite in the U.S. when we went over to Germany, but they were over there. And I remember we all thought it was so funny when a stop sign, instead of saying S-T-O-P, it said H-A-L-T on it. Everywhere you went in Berlin. Halt. Halt. When I think about that, I think about how you have sin in your life. It's corrupting you. It's changing the way you think. That's why you have to have a renewed mind. It's causing you to make really dumb and bad decisions. How many times have you, well, you, you know it in your own life. How many times? Why? Why did I do that? I knew better than to do that. What was I thinking? See, sin corrupts your mind. Causes you to make bad decisions. Choose bad things. And then it messes with your emotions too. Will I ever be happy again? Will I ever be joyful again? Will anything ever be the same again? And it's all just, you know, gloom and doom. Or what they say on hee-haw, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. You ever felt like that? That's David. I don't think he watched hee-haw, but... Uh, but he makes this statement, the corrupting power of sin. And, you know, Psalm uh, 38, 7, you don't want this for your life verse. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. Uh, loins, probably not the best translation. Uh, one translator said kidneys. 
I mean, it's almost like David was sick and maybe had a UTI or something like that. Some of you know the pain of that type of thing. Inflammation and all of that that is going on. Everything hurt. It hurt to move. It hurt to get up. It hurt to do anything. Uh, I would imagine at this point, probably food didn't taste all that great to him. The king palace chefs are trying to make something that the king will really like and something that will perk him up. He doesn't like any of it. He doesn't want to eat any of it. And uh, Come on, try this. You've got to eat something. And he doesn't want to and everything hurts. And he is in a bad, bad situation because sin doesn't just stay in one place. It starts affecting everything. Galatians 5.9 says a little leaven leavens the whole lump and Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 says I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you I will make I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and he doesn't mean sinful flesh he's talking about living warm flesh can you imagine what it's like when everything you do with the Lord is just habit it's just ritual it's just what I do and then all of a sudden it starts meaning something all of a sudden it starts feeding my soul all of a sudden it starts bringing me joy and instruction and and warmth and all of that well that's what David needs and that's what God promises. And so God is doing that because if sin has its way in David's life, David's going to die. And David will never again have any fellowship. He'll never again write a song. He'll never again lead worship. He'll never again be a blessing to his family. Sin is going to corrupt and destroy all of that to destroy him mentally, emotionally, spiritually, as well as the physical toll that it's taking on him. Thirdly, God chastens us to restore our soul. I thought of Psalm 23, that he restoreth my soul, the Bible says. Well, David needed that because in verse 8, it says, I am feeble and severely broken. Notice that adjective, severely broken. Feeble and severely broken. Chelsea, recovering from her surgery, it bothers her because she has to walk with a walker at 32 years of age. You don't expect to be walking with a walker at 32 years of age. It's hard for her to get up, hard for her to get around. She's still under severe restrictions as that surgery heals and as her wounds heal and all of that. Well, I thought about that when I heard about David. David's a giant killer. David's the one that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David is the Warrior, the leader of the mighty men. Remember all of those kind of things. Now he's feeble. Now he's weak. Unsure of his steps. I'm feeble and severely broken. Psalm 107 verses 1 through 7 says. We're kind of countering each one of those things. Oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands. From the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Well, here's the point of all of that. 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of all their distresses, and he led them forth in the right way. You know, sometimes you have to be knocked down before you look up. And that's the way it was with the children of Israel. And so the psalmist in that particular psalm says, this is the point. This is why the Lord led them to that. Why did it get so hard in the wilderness? So they would cry out to the Lord. Why does it get hard in your life? Because sometimes that's the only time you pray. Sometimes that's the only time you pray fervently and really mean it. It's when you're under pressure and uh, you are under the chastisement of God. What is he teaching you? He wants you to give thanks and to cry out to him all the time. Pray without ceasing, the Apostle Paul says. And so if the only time we pray is when we hurt, then get prepared to hurt a lot because God wants to hear from you. If the only time you're going to pray is when you doubt your salvation, then be prepared to doubt a lot because if that's the only time you really seek the Lord, He wants fellowship with you. And so He will arrange it so that you will meet with Him whatever it takes. But He's teaching you something. We've got to learn our lessons. Number four, God chastises to restore joy and strength. Well, it doesn't feel like it. The book of Hebrews that we read says that chastening is, is unpleasant at the moment. Well, afterward, you'll reap righteousness from it. David says, I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. I think about what it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Sounds like a barbecue, doesn't it? And uh, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God. Do not sorrow. Now listen to this. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you ever noticed when you're not joyful, you're tired? You're worn out? You're weak? And that was David's problem. He didn't have any joy. And joy only comes as a result of the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And then peace. Well, we don't get joy unless we're right with God. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I, Jesus, have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He calls us a friend. Well, then why does he chastise us? I don't tend to chastise my friends, do you? Found a verse in Proverbs. Talks about a friend. Proverbs 17, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. What does that mean? The chastisement he puts upon your life to liberate you, to correct you, to fill you with his joy, to restore your soul and all of those. He does that because he loves you. 
Man, I got mugged one time. I went into Baptist Hospital, and they took me back to a little room, and they took all of my clothes and put this robe that wouldn't quite close in the back. You know what those are like? Laid me down in a bed, started sticking needles in my arms, and then they took me back, and they literally sawed my chest open. How dare they? I mean, they did all kinds of stuff to me, and uh, you know what? I paid them for it. Why? Because that was what we would call a faithful wound because they were doing it for my good. Now, if I'm out here on the street and a mugger comes up and takes a knife and cuts me open and leaves me to die, that's a different matter. You know what the Lord is doing through that painful chastisement? He's doing heart surgery on you. He's correcting something on you. He's doing it so that you'll be better. He's doing it for your good. So we ought to thank him and we ought to praise him for his wonderful, wonderful, redeeming, correcting, disciplining love. Because it profits all of us. Man, I didn't need, intend to go that long, but I hope you got the message. Hope you're encouraged. And hope you realize that the trials and the battles you face are never arbitrary. They're always there where the Lord is with you. He gives you his power and strength. And then he teaches us. I'm so glad to be 63 years old. And I know so much more than I did when I was 20. Don't you? I'm so glad I don't make the same dumb mistakes. that I still make mistakes. But they're not the same kind. And there are certain things that I go, oh, I'm recognize that been there before nope not gonna fall down into that thing again that left a mark right well that's what we're doing as we grow in the lord i don't know what stage you're in sometimes i'd like to think i'm a you know a, a young man in the lord and i'm ready to take and go for the battle and then other times i go nope i'm a three-year-old stumbling trying the best i can and uh, the Lord is patient. He knows where we are. He remembers our frame that we are dust. Praise his name. And his discipline is always appropriate. And uh, I promise you, you're not going to have to wonder, why did you do that? He'll make it clear. He's not an abuser. He's training you. Training you for victory and for joy to be in your life. Okay? May we pray? Heavenly Father, we come to you asking you to forgive us, that we sometimes get so frustrated with you. We get tired of what you're doing. We don't learn. We don't apply what you have taught us. We make the same mistakes over and over and over. And we just ask you to please cleanse us of all of that. Help us to be mature. Help us to learn. Help us to listen to what you are teaching us and to act accordingly. And restore to us the joy of your salvation. Teach us the ways in which we are to go. Make us wise. Father, you promised wisdom to those who would ask. We're asking. And Lord, whenever you chastise us, may we never get resentful or ugly about it. But may we remember you are working in us and you love us. Turn our thoughts around about that. It's positive. It's not negative. It's love. It's not hate. It's purposeful. It's not just coincidence or blind luck or 
God forbid, karma or anything like that. A sovereign God is working upon the people that he loves. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.